Hi, everyone. These are unusual times. They're challenging to everyone in so many ways. Here at the Hilarious World of Depression, we are planning to put out our regular episodes every Monday, episodes that have very little to do with COVID-19. We're also going to do whatever we can on other platforms to help. Because of a lot of restrictions on where we can go, parts of the show might not sound as polished as you're used to. But nowadays, very little is as polished as you're used to, and we're all rolling with it as best we can. Wash your hands, stay inside, be kind to others, and yourself. Before you can record an interview, you have to set the volume levels, show the engineer how loud you'll be talking. I had a nice leisurely morning, walked over here. The loudest I might get is something like this. Um, I tend to keep it just sexy, you know, <laughs> so just let the record also, show. Also, I do. I, I am also sexy. But mostly sexy. me, mostly me. So. <laughs> It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. On this episode, a person who has become famous in America rather quickly as a sitcom star and an outspoken activist. The sitcom has ended, but the activism, ooh, it's just getting started. Hello, my name is Jamila Jamil, and I am at the hilarious world of depression. And, uh, and what do you do for a living? I am an actor and an activist and a pain in the ass. <laughs> Three job titles. Mm -hmm. I'm multifaceted. <laughs> Jamila Jamil was a TV and radio host, or presenter, in England for several years. Hello and welcome to the official chart wrap-up with me, Jamila Jamil. I'm here to deliver unto you all of the latest chart news and gossip in less time than it takes to make a cup of tea. So last Sunday, Sigma and Paloma... American audiences first got to know her playing Tahani Al-Jamil, the name-dropping high-society Londoner on the NBC moral philosophy sitcom The Good Place. But we've been through a lot as well. You know, I haven't been this upset since my good friend Taylor was rudely upstaged by my other friend Kanye, who was defending my best friend, Beyonce. Jamila grew up in London. Her parents immigrated from Pakistan and India. She says her family had a lot of mental health problems. Schizophrenia, OCD, bipolar, depression, suicidal ideation. For Jamila, there was anxiety, there was depression, and coming to grips with a lot of trauma. I wouldn't say who within my entire giant family unit, because uh, South Asian family is huge, but there was an abusive background that I came from, and... Um, and a lot of bullying at home and at school. Uh, that happened to us because we were Pakistani and uh, my dad is, I think, technically Indian. Uh, so uh, we were South Asians living in a very racist time in Britain. And so it's just very tense existence to grow up in where people are constantly hounding you with racial slurs and calling you a monkey and not wanting to sit next to you at school and just yeah. a general nightmare. Um, it wasn't great. Doesn't doesn't sound. No, great. it was really bad. I'm amazed I made it out of my. I made it out of my twenties even. Yeah. But I've had like a full nervous breakdown, gone completely, uh, just totally lost it. Looking back on it now, it was pretty bleak. She had big time mental health issues, but she says South Asian immigrant culture didn't talk about that kind of thing, and neither did British culture. 
What was being talked about was the necessity for girls to be ridiculously skinny, and Jamila developed anorexia. So I think as a combination of the fact that I was growing up in the 90s and so heroin chic was a term that adults are using non-ironically where you were to, in order to be beautiful, you had to emulate the look of someone who does not eat and only uh, consumes heroin. It was also a look of famine that people were trying to achieve, which is fucking insane considering that famine was and is still occurring in this world and millions and millions of people uh, are suffering and dying from it and how much those people would love to be able to eat something uh, having their own physiques considered chic in this uh, bizarre and shallow industry I was seeing people in my own country I would fly to Pakistan and see like skeletal people on the side of the street begging for food and then I would come here and see people starving themselves deliberately to emulate that look in order to fit into runway clothes that are just so tiny so the look was just everywhere you know where you were supposed to have jutting out hip bones and bulimia was a badge of honour it wasn't something that you hid there was a long queue outside the girls uh, a long line uh, outside the girls bathroom for everyone throwing up their lunch one after the other after the other Uh, there was a girl who used to bring her weighing scales in school and eat on them I remember Gwyneth Powell giving an interview saying she eats nude uh, in order to stop herself from overindulging and you had Kate Moss talking about uh, nothing tastes as good as thin feels like well tacos Oof. pizza yeah everything for does for fuck's sake <laughs> cake <laughs> ever had cake um, was there a decision that you remember making of I need to start eating way less I need to starve yeah. myself was that a conscious thing or did that just emerge no sadly it was a very very conscious scarring moment of um, my maths teacher wanting to teach us all about graphs and pie charts and she weighed all of us to no. collect all of our weights as data to show a chart <laughs> It's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. Oh. And I was 11 and I was one of the tallest girls. I think it was the second tallest girl in the year. And I was chubby uh, because you've got to get like wide to get tall. And also I was just, that was just my build at the time. I was loving the curry. <laughs> and uh, I had no self-consciousness about my body whatsoever. I loved having a tummy. I didn't know about thighs. Like I was a very innocent child. Mm-hmm. I wasn't remotely interested in the way that I look. And... um that moment changed everything because I was the heaviest girl in the class. I was ridiculed by the entire year. I came home. My family found it shocking and upsetting that I was the heaviest girl in the year. And uh, I was immediately encouraged to diet. And so I started my first diet about 11. And it was you, I was dieting the way an 11-year-old would diet, which is with no understanding of any nutrition. I was living on somewhere between like 200 and 300 calories a day, sometimes less which is insane because I was very tall. And even by the time I hit five foot ten uh, in my early teens, I was still consuming sometimes one to 200 calories a day. I could barely move. I was passing out all the time, didn't ha- did stopped menstruating and thought that I was winning. It never struck you as something is wrong with this. No, everyone was doing it. Everyone was doing it. Everyone was taking laxatives. Everyone was drinking all the teas that I now rally against so hard. Uh, there were slim fast cans all over our school. Like I once, you know, fell over one on the steps. Like someone had just left some on the steps. Uh, it was <laughs> probably a, passed out yeah, and it fell out of their hands. People ate tiny like fake chocolate bars instead of meals. Yeah. It was just uh, people were afraid of carbs and pasta and everyone was on the Atkins diet. So everyone smelled of like metal and asshole. It was just disgusting. (laughs) It was a terrible time and we were all in on it. So it didn't even feel like something you really hid. 
even yeah. though also at the time, because of Hollywood, there was this fucking brag that I think kind of still exists of women pretending they eat so much and just unnaturally thin. What a dumb, weird brag. Were you finding other um, mental illness conditions emerging with the eating disorder or were you just too out of it to even notice a depression or a, an anxiety? I wasn't even out of it. I was high on it. Like I was just sort of... I was you lost were a true in it. I was on a, yeah, I was yeah. such a devoted anorexic and I was so, you know, it's so time consuming to be anorexic. The amount of time you spend learning new tricks, trying new tricks, hiding your food, all of the, all of the things that you have to do were so consuming that I didn't even know that I had any kind of mental illness. I didn't think I had anorexia. I didn't, didn't think there was no, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. The only thing I thought was wrong with me is that I wasn't thin enough. I was never thin enough. Did you understand what anorexia was and just think it was something other people had? Yeah, I used to be jealous of... I, I thought anorexia could only come in the form of, a, of someone who weighs like three or four stone. 42 to 56 pounds. And I would be envious of those people for being able to achieve that. I really didn't get it. But that's the problem is if you give this misinformation to children, we don't have the whole picture. We, don't, we also have this like youthful arrogance to us where we think that our health will last forever, our lives will go on forever, we'll never, be, uh, we'll never face the side effects. You know, no one knows about osteoporosis or kidney damage or liver damage or all the IBS or all the different things that happen to people who mess around with their health. My thyroid, my adrenals, everything is exhausted. Yeah. I mean, I... Even now, sorry, 20 years after I started starving myself. Well, that's what I was going to ask because so often people think of it as, oh, anorexia is when you're not eating enough. But it is a mental thing that you yeah. know, even if you... Fat people can have anorexia. Yeah. And, and even if you find better eating habits later on, the the reasoning, the processing of... of uh, I, the idea of food is still always there. Well, so many, so many of us are taught to weaponize food in our minds. So we're taught that like food is, you know, if you have a parent who beats you and then feels bad about it and then gives you a meal afterwards, you start to associate that meal with love. Or if your parents tell you you're not supposed to eat, then food becomes rebellion and food mm. becomes self-harm. So we can we can give food all these kind of different personalities. And I think a lot of people, a lot more people than we realize, than they realize even, are doing it. The, the guilt associated with food and the coding in the words that we use around food of like clean eating, dirty foods. This is just, there's shame uh, sort of slipped in and enveloped within all of these ways of discussing this thing that we need to give our body nutrition so it can function. Food is fuel. And I didn't know that until I hit 30. The unhealthy eating, you say, con continued for, for quite a while uh, into adulthood. Mm -hmm. Was that what led you into modeling because you had been starving yourself so much that you had achieved this hyper thin look? I mean, I barely was in modeling. I, I got signed at like 15 uh, and then for six months when I wasn't at school, I would go to castings. I didn't really book very much because even though I was so thin, my hips are naturally 37 inches mm. at a minimum. That's the bone. That's the bones. And so I couldn't fit into 34-inch trousers, and therefore it was hard for me to work. Jamila says a car accident changed everything, put her in bed for an extended time recovering. She dropped out of school. And I just never went back. I just There's something about sitting in bed lying in bed for a year and a half that just makes you not ready to go back to a fucking classroom especially not with people who are now two years younger than you yeah at an all-girls school where i'd had a terrible experience right from other right. girls i was just like traumatized i think i actually became a little misogynist who was just looking for male friends at that point and i made friends with a group of boys when i was 19 and i was like that's it i'm set women are terrifying yeah and it's taken me like 10 years almost from that point 
to realise that women are amazing and fantastic and I must spend the rest of my life fighting for their rights. Bedridden for all that time, there wasn't much to do, and she watched a lot of TV. 24 hours a day if I was awake. Mm. And I used to watch a lot of self-help shows because there was like Oprah and Maury and Dr. Phil and mm, that Springer man. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's self-help. But there were all these different shows that were on television, and I'm sure there were more even um, that I'm forgetting now. But they were all starting to talk about mental health and starting to talk about abuse, in particular Oprah. Oprah was someone who was talking about sexual abuse and mm-hmm. and trauma and what women face. And so I didn't know that I'd had an abusive upbringing, truly, mm. until I started watching these TV shows being like, oh, that happened to me and everyone's booing that person. Oh, I went through that. And, and actually, this seems like a really serious subject that happened to me. You just normalize things. You take everything on the chin. If you grow up in a certain environment, that's you, think that that's, you think that that's normal. And, you know, you also hear of worse. Abusers will often tell you of much worse horror stories to make you feel lucky mm. for the situation that you're in. But pain and is pain. Pain is pain. And the abuse is very severe. Uh, I just thought it was normal and because I didn't really have other friends and friends' houses I used to go to. I was a very isolated child. Because of that, I didn't know how abnormal my upbringing was. Mm-hmm. And it's no disrespect to my parents. I think they did the best that they could. But, you know, all families are complicated, some more than others. Yeah. I, I grew up with alcohol in the family and right. I remember going to friends' houses and like, why are their parents acting so weird? You know, what's the what's the <laughs> how are you doing today sport thing all about? Are we in a yeah. are we making fun of this or are we actually doing this? Yeah. It's because it's, you know, and a, I, a I kid didn't understand why no one was screaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um the 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 TV and the Oprah and the Dr. Phil, is that what led you into investigating mental health? Investigating mental health. It changed my life. I didn't know that I had a mental health issue. I didn't know what depression was. I thought depression meant just being sad all the time and crying all the time and lying in the dark. I didn't know that depression could also sometimes just be a numb, repressed rage. Yeah. We just don't like the way it's it's cinematically depicted is always one way. Whereas actually, I just felt very numb. I don't don't have a lot of feelings. I still don't have a lot of feelings. Mm -hmm. I think I switched off at about the age of about five or six. So I don't really feel... uh, empathy all the time like someone dies I held my uncle as he died when I was nine years old I held him as he passed away in my arms and I was okay I was okay at his funeral I um I don't miss people when they're gone I I don't feel a lot of normal feelings which is part of why I tried to kill myself I was just like oh I'm not a person I'm an android there's no point in my existence I shouldn't be here The dead inside quality Jamila talks about actually came in handy when her career in media got started. She had been teaching and got approached by a TV producer at a bar who said, You should go up for the job. And I was like, oh, no, actors and presenters, I just think show business is disgusting. And uh, he said, oh, it's a thousand pounds a day. And I was like, what was the email? (laughs) Because as a teacher, you don't make that in like months. (laughs) Not not saying disgusting is bad. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I could be disgusting. Um, And so I went to the audition and I got it. Yeah. Uh, overnight. And I guess maybe because I'd watched so much television and, and as a teenager, I just knew what to do. I instinctively knew the beats. I knew how to hold myself on television. I knew how to to carry live. I don't know how I knew, but they put me five days after giving me the job, put me live on television on my own on Channel 4, which is one of the biggest channels yeah. in the UK. Did you feel 
vulnerable nope. at all? You, you were never scared because never you were vulnerable. shut down? Never feel shame. Yeah. Yeah. Just desensitized. Perfect for this, like, dis- just disturbing <laughs> world. Um, <laughs> Look, I've got eating disorder experience. I'm desensitized. You got to give me the job. Yeah, yeah. The armor helped, but soon she was a well-known public figure and a woman in England. The British press are really devastating. They're terrible. And I was really traumatized by them and the speculation around the way that I look as an eating disorder survivor and the speculation around if I would ever gain weight or fluctuate in weight, the way that it would be so heavily documented on the front cover of magazines and pictures of my ass and strange men parking outside my house all day in, you know, in groups with cameras or surprising me in alleyways or calling me a fat cunt to my face um, to try and provoke a reaction to make me look sad or angry yep, in the pictures. Yep. So the tabloids are just, the tabloids in Britain are unprecedented. Yeah. Um, but it pushed me to fight back because I didn't care as much as anyone else would. Mm-hmm. I didn't go on a, a starvation diet. I was like, you know what? I'm going to fucking stay fat mm-hmm. and I'm going to start talking about being fat and how it's my fucking right. I, um, that's when my activism really kind of took off. That was eight years ago, I guess. And I was speaking in parliament to politicians about the way that we talk about women and the way that we reduce them in media. Out of desperation, she tried something new. And so I had EMDR therapy, that's eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy. I had a very intensive course of that, and it just kind of cleared the deck. We've talked about EMDR on the show before. It's a type of psychotherapy used to treat trauma. The patient is asked to pull up an image in their mind of the trauma, and then through a series of bilateral actions, movement of fingers, movement of light, electronic pulses, the brain is kind of reprogrammed to not go to that same traumatic image over and over. Just to be clear, okay, so when I was 26, I tried to kill myself. And I decided if I was going to stay on this planet, then I was going to do every single thing I could or heard about to try to get better. Hmm. And so I was ruthless with that. I cut off members of my family. I cut off friends. I stopped a lot of jobs. I started telling everyone the truth about how I felt all the time. Uh, And I heard that it worked for lots of people that I knew and respected the opinion of. And I was like, fuck it. I've got nothing to lose at this point. When you hit rock bottom like that, you truly have nothing to lose. And so it was this or death. Jamila wanted relief fast. Felt like therapy was okay, but this was more of an emergency room situation. And at first, she thought she had made a big mistake. I hated it, and while I was doing it, I had the eye movement type where you have to just watch a dot go across the back yeah, and forth yeah. across the wall while you're imagining your worst fears or you're bringing up your worst memories. And I just, I felt like a dog. I felt offended that someone felt like this could get rid of my very, very serious and true trauma. And yet after two sessions, I noticed a huge difference. Like I was abused in the dark a lot when I was younger and uh, I, from when I was a baby and I, like a very little child. And I, um, I was afraid to sleep in the dark until I was 28, almost 29. And it was my decision to move to America. I didn't have very long between the time that I actually fully made the decision and I left. Mm -hmm. So I started intensive EMDR two or three times a week, which is not advisable. (laughs) But I had a lot lot. of work to do um, just to be able to sleep in the dark. And within two sessions, Jenny, this is someone who I'd never slept in the dark successfully. I just lay awake at night 
freaking out in the lights with all of the lights on. I um, went to a session, second session. During the session, it wasn't very eventful. I didn't really feel anything. I went home that night, went to sleep, woke up in the morning and realised I hadn't triple locked my door. I hadn't checked under my bed for the first time in 28 years. I hadn't checked all of the cupboards and every single room in the house. And I turned the light off without even thinking about it and just gone to sleep. She had so many appointments because she had a ton of trauma to deal with. But one of those traumas was food. Because food takes up hours of a fucking person's day. You're thinking about what you can eat, thinking about what you have eaten, planning your meals for the next week, figuring out when you can starve. It's it's so exhausting. Mm. If someone wants to meet up with you for dinner on a Thursday, then you've got to starve yourself on the Tuesday and Wednesday. It was just my existence. This was all time I could have been thinking about business, about money, about friendship, about sex. I also wasn't good at sex, not to say I'm great now, but I was <laughs> fucking exhausted and my hormones, my estrogen levels were so low. I wasn't interested in having sex. So the hilarity of the fact that I've spent so long, so much of my life trying to look fuckable when I don't end up wanting to fuck is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I just, you have low testosterone if you're a man who's starving himself. You have low estrogen. You don't want to have to, the last thing you want to do is have sex. You just want to go take a nap or something. Yeah, or yeah. bathe in a cake. Like, yeah. you know, you just want to... <laughs> fucking eat something yeah so that was that was really interesting now that you're a big star can you afford cake baths do you <sighs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah out in Hollywood they bring you I just came from one this morning bathtub um, cakes yeah <laughs> continuing the effort to leave behind traumatic things Jamila Jamil decides to leave England and she accidentally becomes a star as an actor that's in a moment The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying it a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say or not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Jamila Jamil, one of the stars of NBC's The Good Place. No, you need to stand up for yourself. I'm going to tell you the same thing that I told Mark Zuckerberg right before he ousted Eduardo Savarin. You are smart, you are capable, and the time has come to hit unfriend. I also told Mark to lose the the. You know, just Facebook. That was me. In 2016, Jamila left London. Why did you come to America? I came to America because I'd always wanted to come to America because all the films and all the comedies and all the TV I'd ever watched and loved, most of it was American. Obviously, we have Monty Python and The and the Office and extras and all these different things mm-hmm. in England. But I was so in love and enamored with Hollywood, with, the, with, the, with films and stories. And I always felt like everything I saw that was shot in California and New York had a golden sepia tint to it. And uh-huh. I wanted to be in that golden sepia tint. Uh, sepia, uh, I think you call it here. And I uh, just, I found out I had a, a lump in my breast when I was at 28. And they said it might be cancer. And I had a week to wait and find out if it was after the biopsy. And um, I made a little fuck it list instead of a bucket list. And I was mm-hmm. like, these are all the things I'm going to do if I don't if I don't uh, have cancer. And the number one thing on that list was move to America. 
Okay. I'm kind of California. I wanted to be by the beach. And sure. so I found out it wasn't cancer. They gave me the operation date and you can fly six weeks after an operation. And so I did. And I just wanted to write. I wanted to be behind the camera. I was just like, this industry is just so toxic. And also, as a South Asian, you just don't see a lot of representation. We had like Aziz back then. That was yeah. it. Aziz was our Beyonce. <laughs> Like that was it. Aziz, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, we didn't have anyone else. And Mindy, sorry. Being away from the camera, she thought, would let her preserve the clarity and peace of mind EMDR had provided. Uh, I'm really, really fucking glad that I uh, sorted this stuff out before I came to the one of the darker parts of this industry. Yeah. Hollywood and what it does to actresses is just out of control. I don't know a single actress with a normal attitude towards food or their body. Not one. How did The Good Place come about? I had been dicking around for about a year and uh, in America, didn't have any jobs, didn't have a visa, didn't have any money left. Um, and I'd gone a well on a, thought through plan. Yeah, as yeah. always. Um, and, I'd, <laughs> and I'd gone on a world tour with my new boyfriend. Uh, James Blake. James Blake. James Blake, the singer, is Jamila's longtime boyfriend, not James Blake, the tennis player. There are two James Blakes. And they, my manager worked at Three Arts who were also making The Good Place. And he was like, listen, there's this role for this really annoying Indian woman who's too tall and she's English. I think you should go up for it. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't know how to act. I can't act. I don't belong in this. It's a proper craft. It's a trade. I don't know how to do this. I can't act opposite Ted Danson. He was like, look, it's an audition. You probably won't get it anyway. So I went for this audition after extreme pressure from all of my agents and managers. And I did think it was cool that as a young writer, I would get to meet Mike Scher. Mike Shore is the creator of The Good Place. Maybe I could end up near the writer's room. And then he gave me the part of Tahani. Mm. Two or three auditions, I think, in total. Tahani is a heartbreaking character, born into every kind of privilege, but basically unloved throughout her life. Always name-dropping to puff herself up to her only ever friends, which are the ones she makes after dying. And yet, usually pretty chipper. It's a deep character for any actor, especially one who had never acted before. How much of what the role ended up being was there at the beginning? She was much nicer. Yeah. Much less annoying. <laughs> I really, like, turned her into a nightmare. Um, but the, the, the her funny name dropping and all of these wonderful quirks about her, I complete credit to the writers. It's just that I made her passive aggressive and more London because I think that there is this um, misinformation that all English people are like Emily Blunt and just mm -hmm. very sophisticated and well-spoken and sweet and kind and well-mannered, whereas actually we're just all assholes. It was fun and easy to find clips from The Good Place that demonstrated what Jamila was saying. Eleanor, everyone hates you. We'll fork you too. No, this is good. Now that we know, we can actually do something about it. And I am an expert at mediating conflict. Like when my friend Scary Sporty Posh and Baby had an issue with my other friend, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And trust me, there's a lot of fucking fakeness and social climbing and bullshit in California in Los yeah. Angeles in particular. But at least everyone's ass, like sort, sort of kissing their way up uh -huh. and social climbing their way up, which feels like a, a more sensible direction at least. Yeah. And so I think as long as you know who you are, you can cope. 
Yeah, yeah. At least, I mean, fake niceness is at least a form of niceness. I'm into it. <laughs> not mad it. at it at all. <laughs> don't need anyone to really genuinely like me. I just want them to not fuck up my day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I live in Minnesota, where when I when I moved there, people said, "Well, they're going to act like they're they're nice, but you know, they're never going to be your true friends." I'm like, that that can work. That's fine. Fine. <laughs> I love surface level shit. Yeah, that's just. I love two facedness. I love it. Just like, just get out of my way. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have 12 friends. I don't need anyone else. Yeah. You're all booked up. You're like Jesus. I am Jesus. I'm Jesus. (laughs) You go fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So where was your mental health by by the time you became, you know, a star on a hit NBC show? Like So much better. Yeah. So much better. It was like 15 to 20 EMDR sessions later. And I felt like I knew who I was. I wasn't, I'm not perfectly well I'm still not perfectly well now I've just gone through a really severe patch of depression recently um but generally my anxiety was way down my social anxiety was way down almost because of the EMDR because of the EMDR and uh I think also James was very good at teaching me how to verbalize my rage which really helped me get rid of my depression he even when I was angry with him he would encourage me to let it out and he would never curtail my voice Mm -hmm. so I kind of got to learn how to fight with James Mm. He taught me how, and once I could stand up to him or like fight with him, I could fight with anyone. Yeah, the art of the art of non-threatening argument. Yeah, and so also we learned about the art of non-violent communication, which oh, is yeah. learning how to that Marshall Rosenberg, I think, is his name, and learning how to communicate how you feel and how angry you are without making someone else completely defensive. Something I love about the Good Place was that. Um, you had like an, as I understand it, an on-set philosopher. Mm-hmm. There, there was, mm-hmm. and, and the whole show is really about what we owe to each other and, yeah. and how to be a person in the world. Todd is in the final, like I think the finale or was one of the final episodes. Is he? Yeah. yeah. And you know, I watch it with my family, and and it leads to these discussions of of uh, philosophy that you don't tend to get from the half-hour sitcom very I know. very often. <laughs> what did what did that do to how you saw the world, how you saw your place in it? just working on these scripts all the time. I think it definitely informed me a lot about people. It informed me about motivations and corrupt motivations and empathy. You know, empathy isn't something that comes naturally to me because Mm -hmm. of my upbringing. And remembering that everyone has a story. And so when someone is annoying you or someone has a, you know, because each of the characters are tremendously flawed and problematic in their own way. And because Mike Show is a master of empathy, he loves to give you the whole backstory of someone's journey. And that can teach you a lot about why they behave the way that they do. And I feel like if I had understood that when I was younger, I would have been a much more tolerant and better, kinder person. Can you give me an example of, like, did he do that with your character? Like Tahani, you know, just an insecure, vainglorious bitch, but also someone who was made her entire life to feel like she wasn't good enough by her parents, who didn't show her any affection and only ever pitted her and her sister against each other and celebrated her sister and diminished her. So therefore, she's spending her life out in the world trying to fill the void that was left by her parents, which I think we are all doing in some way, not just our parents, but our, our home environment. You know, when people have, uh, you know, a compulsive, I don't know, like sex addiction, sometimes that is something that they're trying to fill, mm-hmm. you know, or food addiction, all these different things. I think that there's always like, it's a young fracture that we're trying to fix. The Good Place ended a little while ago. Very satisfying finale, by the way. I think I'm going to rewatch it, though, now that I know more about Jamila and this overlap of trauma with the character of Tahani. 
so often people think of trauma, and we've talked about this on the show, as a trauma is you know, you, you, your car accident, like a trauma is a specific yeah. horrifying event, but it can also be complex trauma spread out over years yeah. of, of something being not right. And then the trauma is often related to having to pretend that it is, that it's, yep. that it's okay. Gaslighting yourself sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Being gaslit by others and gaslighting yourself is just unbelievably difficult. And also trauma can come in forms of like coercive control or really insidious, abusive ways. And uh, it's so important just to keep talking about it as much as we can whenever we have a platform so that we can help people identify theirs just like I was able to identify mine Mm -hmm. by television that I was watching when I was, you know, (laughs) a teenager. Yeah, by Oprah. Yeah. And pals. I really fucking owe Oprah. Yeah. Have you told her that? Have you gotten to talk to her? No, I've never met her. I've never met her. Okay. Well, we have a surprise for you. No. Hey, Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) Here she comes. Um, You become very well known. You become famous through this show and through all the other work that you've done. Um, What does that do for for someone with the mental health past that you have? Because at first glance, I would think— Fucking dangerous. Don't go in there. Yeah. The first time around when I became very famous in England, that was, I was not ready for that. It's what definitely helped drive me completely towards suicide and made me a crazy self-conscious, sort of a crazed, sorry, self-conscious version of myself. Um, I was hysterical inside. Um, This time around after EMDR, I felt much more composed, much better about myself. I no longer struggled with my eating disorder. I uh, no longer used to look in the mirror. So therefore, I didn't have to deal with my body dysmorphia all the time. Um, I had more hours in the day that meant to think about interesting things or learning my lines or being a good friend or lover. Um, So I was better prepared. I was also in my 30s this time around. Making it, like, I don't think anyone should be allowed in this industry before they're 30. Honestly, it's just, it'll just destroy you. Yeah. I've fucked up all of my friends. They're so messed up. Mm-hmm. No one is normal. A couple years ago, Jamila started an Instagram account called I Weigh, and it quickly became a social movement. Huge following. I saw a picture of the Kardashians, and they are very successful young businesswomen, uh, whatever I or anyone else may think of them. Mm-hmm. And I saw a picture of numbers written across their body, and those numbers were not income or anything they'd achieved. It was the number that they weigh on a scale. Uh, so I thought, because oh, you'd never see a picture like this of, of men. So I looked and looked and looked, and other than UFC fighters, I couldn't find any pictures of men with their weight written anywhere near the picture because we don't care what men weigh. Was it's this not of interest to us. posted by the Kardashians no, themselves? No, it was posted else. by some big eating disorder account that had 500,000 followers, one of those sort of diet tips accounts that's masquerading as diet tips, but really it's an eating disorder sort of uh, thin inspiration account. And once you click on them because of the algorithm and because I'm also just a woman, um, I suddenly started getting flooded with those sort of things. The problem with nowadays is that when you were younger, back in my day, uh, you could go out and spend $4 to get triggered. Mm-hmm. You'd have to go, like go out of your way in the cold yeah, and the rain. You'd have to make an to effort to feel yourself. terrible. Yeah, you'd have to go and find a TV show or fashion TV. But now it finds you. And so... What was I? To, what you know? What was I to do? And so once I was being flooded with images of Taylor Swift worth two hundred and seventy million, but we don't see that written on it. We just see her weight and Selena Gomez, who sold millions and millions of records worldwide. All these women who've made history and achieved amazing things, 
their weight written across their body. So one day I decided to reject this and I just posted on my very small Twitter following um, account. Uh, I weigh my financial independence, my relationship, my friends, uh, the eating disorder I've survived, my bingo wings. Um, that's the, the <laughs> flap of fat under uh, my arms. I think wings, they call sure. it high Helens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, and I weigh the sum of my motherfucking parts. And that's the message that I'm taking into my 30s. And I didn't expect anyone to respond. I didn't ask anyone to. And within days, I had about 10,000 posts from women all over the world sending me theirs back. Mm. Started an Instagram account, thought it would be very temporary. Uh, asked a friend to assist me in uploading all these pictures because there were too many for me to even cope with uh, by myself. And two years later, it's now it has a million followers. And uh, we play none of the usual tricks that people play to get that kind of a following on yeah. Instagram and everything uploaded is something that's been submitted by our followers. It is the purest community of activism and allyship that exists on the internet, I think. Did something change in the world that made something like that become so popular whereas a different message has been crammed down throats for so many decades before? I think it was a new way of looking at it. It was a very simple way of challenging a giant system of oppression and so I just struck... I struck gold with the expression of I weigh and mm. I think it was just hurting people so much. And I also think without Tarana Burke's work on Me Too, a uh, slogan wouldn't have travelled so far. Uh, activism wouldn't have been able to emerge so quickly. I don't think most women would have felt so comfortable sharing their stories as they did, or most people. I weigh is not Jamila's only online activism. If someone takes a dig at her on Twitter, she very often counterpunches. It's the kind of conflict you see most people and nearly all celebrities walk away from. And a lot of the digs are about her credibility. A recent article in Slate questioned her health history, her stories of car accidents and suicide attempts, and her having the chronic disease of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On Twitter, uh, I saw this morning as I was coming over, uh, you posted about all these people who are saying that they expect you to say that you have coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you are showing all these posts to the world. I also know that there's been other, you know, there was a comedian who was, took a jab at you mm -hmm. and you jabbed back. And I, I, I mean, I've been following you for a while and I always think, why does she, like it, these assholes want to provoke her mm -hmm. and she's giving them what, she, what they want. Like, why do you mix it up with jerks so much instead of just ignoring them? Because I think it's part of my therapy mm. to fight back. I can't swallow shit anymore. I can't. I'm allergic to it. And so I don't respond to everyone. But when I think there's a point that I can make and I can use someone as an example for my followers so that they can understand a situation and not read the wrong information out of it, um, I think sometimes not engaging can allow a conversation to go too far. And so sometimes by clapping back at the right person in the right way, you can make a bigger point. And it also makes me feel better to get shit off my chest. So throwing a bunch of shit back at that comedian felt good. Because mm. I'm not going to just eat shit anymore. I don't believe in being the bigger person. I don't believe in turning the other cheek. I don't believe in being the bigger man. I want to be the smaller man. I'm going to get down in the fucking gutter with you and drag you by your fucking hair. And that makes me feel better and that helps my mental health. Is it? <laughs> I know it's not very poised, but also okay. <laughs> fuck people sometimes. Um, and I think what they were doing was so dangerous. I, I'm happy to have the piss taken out of me all day. I take the piss out of myself. 
I um, my pinned tweet is me taking the piss out of myself. Can you define that British term? Taking, taking the, the piss out of, taking the Mickey out of, uh, making fun of. Okay. I've got a sense of humour about myself. I've built an entire career out of making fun of myself or telling overly personal stories that are embarrassing. Um, that's fine. I feel like I know exactly who I am, and I don't feel afraid of anything. And I feel as though I'm exercising white male privilege. I'm just saying whatever the fuck comes into my head. Two mixed results, to be fair. But I feel, it feels good. And I don't care about other people's opinions. They're not being popular, like I said earlier. Not important to me. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, would, I, I recommend it. Just microaggressions if you're, if you're just dipping your toe in the water. <laughs> Microactivisms and microaggressions. Work your way up to full aggression. Yeah. yeah. Full activism. I don't know. Like, I... I'd, perhaps I don't sound like the most pleasant person, but fuck it, I'm not here to be pleasant. I'm just here to be effective and to make people feel less shame. Jamila says her relationship with James Blake has been a big help and a new experience. I found uh, like an ally and mm. I felt like we were both investigating this together. He did EMDR at the same time as me. You know, we were both kind of just on this journey together and we didn't think that we'd stay together. We were just like, once we both had therapy, we'll probably realise that we just trigger each other and this is a horrible <laughs> mistake that's just based in sex. Uh, and yet we ended up, luckily, uh, being more in love at the end. The thing we say perhaps the most on this program is you got to find solutions that work for you. For Jamila Jamil, it was EMDR, getting out of England, advocating for women and a good amount of punching back. It's put her in a better place, and it's made her okay with having emotions. Are the feelings opening up now? Is that... A little bit, little yeah. Bit? Are I you... get moved sometimes by things. I've definitely felt touched by things um, somewhat sometimes, but it's on and off. It's hard in this industry and in this world to stay open now. It doesn't really feel safe at this time. Politically, everyone's so rage-addicted, and it's a scary time. It kind of feels like a great weapon to be able to shut myself off. Um, I wish I could control it a bit more. But, you know, I'm a human in progress. Is it a goal? To, like, is it mm -hmm. something you want? It's to my main up? goal. Yeah. It's my main goal is to just to something. have feelings and to be happy. The EMDR has definitely helped me access some feelings. Like oh, good. I've, I've cried for the first time uh, over, how, like, over the last that couple of years. <laughs> it's like my face did not take to it well. <laughs> Oh my god! I looked like fucking Nemo for about three days because my face was just like, "What is this?" You just uh, were bad at crying. Just, just bad at crying. <laughs> I make bad faces when I'm doing it. I haven't <laughs> nailed it at all. My eyes just sort of look like two very swollen vaginas for days afterwards. Stay out um, of Lifetime movies yeah, for a while. I can't do it when I cry in the good place. They've put drops in my eyes because I can't do it when they're like pull from your pull from your pain. I can't. I don't have any pain. Yeah. <laughs> Feel crazy numb. Jamila is hosting the I Weigh podcast that premieres April 3rd. On our next episode, author and therapist Lori Gottlieb found that one effect of postpartum depression was weirding people out. I was like, I need other adults to talk to. The UPS guy would come every day with all of my deliveries, and I would be like, how about those diapers? Do you have kids? And he would literally back away <laughs> to his big brown trek to avoid the conversation with me because I was so desperate for human connection. And um, That's not a great sign, is it? It was not a great sign. And, then, and sometimes he got to the point where he would tiptoe to my door and gently put the package down so I wouldn't hear him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really pathetic. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our production team includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, Sarah Bruguer, and John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. 
If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and makeitok.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward. Make It Okay has tips on what to say and not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter and come visit us on Facebook. Search for the name of the show or search for Thwadballs. I'm John Moe. Bye now. says doc that's the problem what if i was to tell you i'm payachi this great big smile is just for show what if i was to tell you this is just grease paint would you say i'm a hopeless case say it ain't so I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know